Why, hello, church family. It is Pastor Jake once again coming to you from my office here at the Parsonage. Uh, Hopefully this will be the last message that I will be recording directly from home. Uh, Looks like we are starting to move forward with plans to reopen as we have sent out guidelines uh, following with the uh, state's regulations, restrictions, and guidance. And uh, we've been trying to get in touch with each and every single one of you. So thank you so much for bearing with us during this time. Uh, We are so excited to start moving towards reopening again. I uh, can't wait to see you in person. We are so excited. Uh, Let's open up in prayer, and we're going to jump right into today. Uh, Father, I do thank you for this opportunity just to look at your word and to gain more insight and knowledge. Lord, I thank you so much uh, just for the direction and leading that you do uh, every single day of our lives. Thank you for not giving up on us. Lord, thank you for for bearing with us even when uh, we uh, tend to be a little bit... uh, uh, hard of hearing and uh, sometimes uh, uh, even uh, take a little while to get the point. But Father, I thank you so much for just uh, for watching over each and every single one of us. Lord, I thank you for the blessings and I thank you for the times of growth. Lord, help us to use today to uh, build into our lives and make us closer to the image of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we looked at one of the more debated subjects among Christians, and we call that the Mosaic Law. The law, as it's often referred to, is spread out through most of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The book's names describe kind of what they contain. So Leviticus is commands to the Levites. That's the main law and guide, and it directs. Numbers was primarily counting, and that's why you find all the family lists. Instead of just saying Bob had 50 descendants, the book lists them all by name, which can be exhausting, but it's important for record keeping, and that is another sermon for another day. Deuteronomy actually means the second law or second giving of the law, and these laws provide guidance and direction for a fledgling nation uh, as they were separating and establishing their self as their own entity. And it's for that reason that you'll find so many governance laws contained within these pages of scripture. Now, Israel was off to a great start. They had seen the power of the hand of God show up in many amazing ways. God had shown them that he could be counted faithful, and he was on their side. God's faithfulness stands in stark contrast to what people continually show. He, last week, the Israelites camped at the foot of Mount Sinai, and this is where Moses went up and he received the Ten Commandments from God. So today, we're going to start the journey here. So turn with me to Exodus chapter 31, verse 18. Exodus chapter 31. Moses is wrapping up his 40 days on the mountain with God, and God had just given him many instructions to bring back to the people. This is what it says. And he gave to Moses... When he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. So we find here that God himself had written the Ten Commandments with his own finger. Now, we don't know if he used lightning or a really sharp fingernail, but we do know that it was God himself who wrote them down initially. During this amazing mountaintop experience, and yes, that is where we get the expression from, Moses is abruptly warned by God that something is going on with the Israelites in his absence. So let's check that out in Exodus chapter 32, verses 7 through 8. It's just a chapter over, Exodus 32. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. 
They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf, and they have worshipped it and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So God is clearly upset. He just invested a lot of effort in showing the nation that the false gods of Egypt weren't real gods, and they had no power. But within an incredibly short span of time, they were already turning back to their old ways, even though that they had been clearly shown that those ways were a dead end. God actually suggests that because of the people's inability to turn from their ways, that he should wipe them out and let Moses start the nation over again. The next two verses read like this. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I might make a great nation for you. Moses implores God not to do such a thing. Basically, he's saying that the other people would make fun of his name, he being God, that brought the nation out just to let them perish. Moses asks God to remember his promises, and after some conversation, God relents. It's at this point that Moses heads down the mountain. What he finds makes him just as angry as it made God. Pick up verses 19 through 20 with me. As soon as he came near the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing. Moses' anger burned hot. He threw the tablets out of his hands and he broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf and what they had made and he burned it with fire, ground it to powder, and scattered it into the water and made the people of Israel drink it. So, first, Moses breaks the tablet that God had just wrote with his own finger. Then, he grinds up the gold into powder. He scatters it into the water and he makes the people drink it. Now, there are a couple of theories out there as to why he ground it down to powder and made them drink it. One of the prevailing theories is that back then, at the end of idol worship festivals, the people would have been drinking uh, sweet wine. Uh, drinking gold-laced water would have been extremely bitter in comparison, and it would have caused severe nausea. And it would have been an extreme reminder of where their actions had left them. It might just be me, but I'm starting to think Moses is a bit angry. Especially given that he just argued for God to spare their lives. Of course, like any good leader, he wants to know how this happened and who led the making of the golden calf. And the answer has to sting, because it turns out it's his own brother, Aaron, who was just recently given the position of spiritual leader of the nation. But wait, it gets worse. Check out the conversation between the brothers, starting in verse 21. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you, that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, and that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this, Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened or became of him. So I said to him, Let anyone who has gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. I can only imagine what was going through Moses' head after hearing this. It would have been something like, So wait, let me get this straight. You were out minding your own business, doing your duties, and leading the people spiritually toward God, and you were as you were supposed to be doing. And then these people, these evil people, as you say, came up to you and they forced you to make gods for them. At which point you conceded, took their gold, tossed it in the fire, and a golden calf just happened to... Form within the flame and then hop out on its own, just mooing about, munching on grass and telling you to worship. Is that correct? Am I hearing you correct? Moses is beyond peeved. He is irate. And he has every reason to be. It's clear that though the bloodline nation 
has been saved from slavery in Egypt, there were many who wanted to go back to that slavery, to go back into bondage and resume their old idol-worshipping ways. It becomes clear at this point that there are many within the nation that are not going to stand for the plans God has for them, and they need to be separated out. It is here that God decides that Israel needs to be pruned down a bit. The first pruning is at the hands of their own contemporaries. So pick up the story in verse 26. We're going to read through 29. Then Moses stood at the gate of the camp and he said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And the sons of Levi gathered around him and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each one of you, and go to and from the gate to the gate throughout the camp. And each one of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his own son and his brother, that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. About 3,000 people die at the hands of relatives and friends. This is serious stuff. God is trying to call these people out, but they keep wanting to go back. Back to a life that only leads to a slow death of the mind and the soul. I wonder sometimes if the consequences are so much more severe because they have had the privilege of seeing so many miracles performed that they have been left with absolutely no excuse on any level to do what they did. What is interesting to note is that even though Aaron was complicit with the actions of the people, he was spared. There is a chance that he actually wanted to follow God, but ultimately felt pressured by the people to do what they wanted because of how many there were, and then he complied. The first pruning removed the people who just wouldn't follow God from the nation. These are the people that were actively against God. They stood apart. They were cut off. Now, at this point, if this isn't enough, a second pruning comes from God himself. First, the people who wouldn't follow are cut off, and those who do want to follow God but came alongside the offenders due to pressure are also punished. Verses 34 through 35 read like this. But now, go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they had made a calf, the one that Aaron made. There is a solid point back here. The finger is squarely pointed at Aaron for being the stopgate that broke open and allowed these people to do these things. It is the responsibility of those in leadership to toe the line, to stand for God and direct people, even under pressure to compromise, to stand firm on what God has said. As Christians, we are each called to these standards. We are each called to be priests, to be those who communicate to God on the behalf of others, just like we talked about in the last sermon. How can we set the example if we continually compromise? How can a nation floundering in direction and floundering in faith look to us as the examples that we are called to be, to lead them to truth, to lead them to a relationship with Christ, if we are unstable in our own faith? These men and women said that they would follow God, or at least made it seem like they would follow God because it was convenient for them. Life following God was extremely convenient for them. Not only were they free from the large majority of the consequences of the plagues, but they had also just inherited almost all the riches of Egypt. Concerning wealth, every man went from a slave to a king overnight. But now it was becoming inconvenient. They were having to show patience. They were having to camp in the wilderness, and they were having to wait on God. They were having to trust God as their lives were completely upended. 
The old routines they had were gone. They could no longer walk down the street to the local bakery for bread. Everything had changed. It was from this change that they were having to learn a new way of doing everything, and it was here that the old ways would seem the most easy. I'm sure you've had a point in life where you wished that you could just go back to a simpler time. And that's where these people are at. And that is where temptation crept in, and it took hold. Temptation doesn't come knocking on your door when you are strong and everything is doing well. The Gospel of Mark makes this sentiment in chapter 3, verse 27. Mark chapter 3, verse 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. The verse in context is talking about spiritual warfare, but the principle is the same. If you are strong and healthy, if everything in life is going well, then temptation cannot easily overtake you. However, when you are at your lowest, when you are frustrated, the days where you just want to give up because life is too hard to continue on, where every effort falls flat and you feel like your wheels are just spinning in the mud and you can't get any momentum, it's at these moments the moments where your thought changes just slightly when your guard is down. These are the moments that temptation creeps in and it takes over. It was at this point where the nation had let temptation take control. It seems by God's reactions that it wasn't a one-time deal, but it was a continual problem with these people. They weren't just falling into temptation, they were actively seeking it out. Think of the complaining of the dying of thirst that led Moses to open up the rock and let a river of water come forth a couple of chapters back in 17 verse 6. Think of the manna that came when then they complained that the manna wasn't enough so God sent the birds so that so much so that they even couldn't handle the birds in 16 verse 13. These people had a bad habit of complaining when things weren't going their way. This went this way, way beyond temptation and the inability to overcome it. These people showed that they were self-centered, not God-centered, and they were having an extremely hard time changing. The outrightly defiant had been dealt with swiftly. Those who showed regret or repentance had had lives spared, but they still had consequences of their sin and disobedient hearts. This came in the form of sickness or a plague, as the last verse of chapter 32 had stated, you know, I thought plagues were reserved for the idol-worshipping Egyptians. Oh, oh, wait. Apparently, some were still there, at least in heart. They just happened to be Israelites on the outside. It is at this time, in the beginning of chapter 33, that God says he's going to step back from the nation as they continue their journey to the promised land, that he's going to send an angel ahead of them to clear the path, but he will no longer travel with them as he feels if he sticks around much longer He'll end up killing all of them. Let's read chapter 33, verses 1 through 3. Chapter 33. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Prezizites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. The people are in complete despair at this news. They realize that they have failed and that God is withdrawing from them. They are told to take off their ornaments and jewelry like they would at mourning or uh, a funeral service as they move forward. Long story short, 
Moses intercedes on behalf of the people. The people repent of their ways and seemed to have learned their lesson. Moses then goes and he makes new tablets containing the Ten Commandments and the nation moves forward. And it's here at this point that about a year has passed since leaving Egypt. Part of this time is two 40-day time periods set aside for Moses to talk with God. Another large part of that time is the building of the tabernacle. All of its furnishings, including the garments and the jewelries for the priests, are made as well. Fairly impressive feat that they are putting out, especially since they are pretty much camping, and they are able to do some really intricate woodwork and metalwork during this time. The nation is now camped near the edge of the promised land, and Moses decides to send 12 spies in to check things out. And you've probably heard this one before, but bear with me. Moses sends the spies in to check the land out. Ten bring back a less than favorable report, and two bring back a good report. The people have a reply that echoes every reply that they have had since coming out of Egypt. Turning over a couple of books to the book of Numbers, chapter 14, you can see their response. Numbers chapter 14, we're going to start in verse 1. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt, or would that we have died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? They said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. I think I'm starting to understand why God keeps calling these people a stiff-necked people. They refuse to change. They refuse to believe. They refuse to trust. Time and time again, God keeps giving them opportunity, but their hearts keep heading back to Egypt. What is God to do? God's reply in verse 11 goes like this. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me, and how long will they not believe in me, in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? Miracle after miracle, the people, God's chosen people, mind you, refused to believe in him. Only two of the spies had believed in him. The vast majority, the other ten, a solid representation of the people as a whole, did not believe in the power of God and were unwilling to put their faith in him. After Moses prays to God to not kill the people again, God says in verse 22 through 23, None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers, and none of those who despise me shall see it. Wow. An entire generation, a generation that had seen the glory of God manifested in ways that we can only imagine. Think about it. Between the plagues, the crossing of the sea, the pillars of fire and cloud, the man of the water that came out of the rock, the quail that came down, they still refused to trust his power. In the New Testament, there is a hotly debated topic, and it's called the sin unto death. It comes from 1 John chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, and it reads like this. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, but there is a sin that leads to death, and I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there still is a sin that does not lead to death. This is where good hermeneutics comes into play. Hermeneutics is the science or methodical interpretation of the scriptures. It's the way we break things down and we understand what the Bible is really saying. 
We always build what we believe from more than one verse or more than just one book of the Bible. And that way it creates a very solid foundation for what we believe. The Lord has just said in what we were reading in Numbers that the nation had tested him ten times and not believed in his power or obeyed his voice. This carries over to the New Testament in several ways. At the beginning of the church, it was just forming and it really was starting to take off. And there's this couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira. In the book of Acts, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, they try to look like they're going to give everything that they have to the church to fit in with what everyone else is doing. So they sell their possessions, but then they only bring a part of the money but state to the church leadership, the uh, apostles, that it's the whole amount. They're struck down dead for their conspiring to deceive God. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, we find that Paul says that others have received the same fate for trying to deceive God instead of trusting him. At the end of the day, the sin unto death is a willful, continuous, unrepentant sin. I want to be clear from the beginning that this is a physical death, not a loss of salvation. You cannot lose your salvation. What John is stating in 1 John 5.16 is that there comes a point when God can no longer allow a believer to continue in unrepentant sin, that God may decide to take the life of the stubborn, sinful believer. The death is a physical death. God at times purifies his church by removing those who deliberately disobey him. The Apostle John makes a distinction between the sin that leads to death and the sin that does not lead to death. Not all sin in the church is dealt with in the same way because not all sin rises to the level of a sin that leads to death. John's own words. In the account of Ananias and Sapphira, God dealt with very intentional calculated sin by taking the life of the sinner. John said that we should pray for Christians who are sinning and that God will hear our prayers. However, there may come a time when God decides to cut short a believer's life due to unrepentant sin. Prayers for such an unheeding person will not be effective. This is what happened to the nation of Israel. They refused to trust God. They just wouldn't take him at his word and promises, even though they had been shown so much. So they were removed. Their unbelief caused the nation to wander for 40 years until all the adults that had seen all of the miracles in Egypt, except for Joshua and Caleb, died. They didn't get to the promised land because at the end of the day, they didn't believe in it. Nothing could change their minds. So how do these things apply to us today? Our relationship with God is slightly different than theirs. We have faith in Christ. But John's warning was said to people who have faith in Christ, or at least those who pretended to. First, we can learn from Aaron's mistakes. Aaron was called to lead the people around him to deeper relationships with God, but pressure from those around him to conform led him to make compromised decisions. We too are called to lead others to God through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Our world, our nation or state, even our family and friends will continually tempt you to dilute your message. You will be tempted to make compromised decisions about what you say and how you live your life about what you watch and what you listen to. Learn from Aaron's mistakes. Don't let those around you pressure you to be something that you are not called to be. Second, you will be tempted. Temptation will not come when you expect it. It won't come when you are doing well. Temptation waits for the sick and for the lonely. Temptation will wait until you feel about ready to give up or give in. 
Temptation will wait until you feel all alone when you are at your weakest. Avoid temptation by keeping a healthy relationship with God daily. The stronger your relationship with your Savior, the harder you will be to tempt. And finally, sin unto death is unrepentant sin. Those who have determined to deny Christ are in this category. But beware, as a Christ follower who chooses to follow sin instead of God's leading, you are heading into very dangerous waters. You will not lose your salvation, but you may be taken to heaven early, as God left you on earth to do His will, and in your continuous unrepentant sin, you are not doing so. I want to leave you with a warning and an encouragement. Hebrews 12.6 says this, For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. I want you to know that God loves you. He wants the best for you, so pay attention and learn from what He is trying to teach you today. Thank you so much for listening in. I hope these words are encouraging and a solid warning. Follow God with everything, and you will never regret it.